Good afternoon and good evening, everybody. Yes, welcome. Welcome back to uh, the second session of uh, 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 Dr. Shippey's special seminar on Beowulf. Uh, good to have you again here today. Keep in mind, again, if you're if you're new, if you type stuff into the chat uh, window there in your GoToWebinar control panel, then Dr. Shippey will be able to see your questions and address those at the end of his talk. Um, please do feel free to go ahead and start adding those as they occur to you uh, along the way, and then he can see them all there at the end. So uh, without further ado, I will hand it over to Dr. Shippey. Thanks very much. Hi, everybody. Well, uh, this talk is about uh, Tolkien and the origins of England. But uh, as always, uh, there's a few things left over from last time, which I didn't get around to addressing. Uh, there are a couple of questions which I saw, but uh, couldn't get to before we closed down. So let me just deal with those now. Uh, one, I think Sparrow asked, uh, where did I get this strange term Melon Udrigal from? Uh, and the answer is, it's uh, John Buchan's novel, Which Wood? Uh, that's which, W-I-T-C-H. Um, we know that uh, Buchan was actually Tolkien's favorite author, and people often take that wrongly, because what Buchan has remained famous for are his spy stories, uh, like The 39 Steps, which has been filmed several times. But uh, I don't think Tolkien meant those. I think he was really uh, fascinated by, uh, most of all, um, Buchan's uh, historical novels. And there are four of these which seem to me to be particularly Tolkienian. One is Witch Wood, which has some Tolkienian scenes in it. Another is um, The Path of the King, which I'm sure was Tolkien's intended model for The Lost Road, which he, of course, never got round to, to completing. Um, another one is Midwinter. I've never met anybody who has read this novel, Midwinter, but it contains uh, the word halfling. It has a character who's really uh, very reminiscent of Gollum in the way he talks, and it has a climactic scene at the end, which is very like the Samath Naur scene with the destruction of the ring. It's about destroying a ring, actually. Um, and uh, the fourth one is called The Blanket of the Dark, and that uh, actually has something very like rangers in it. So those four novels, uh, well, I, uh, The Path of the King is actually a, a set of linked uh, short stories. But those four books, um, well, I recommend them to anyone who's uh, interested in Tolkien. Um, and you'll see what I mean, I think, it's pretty much as soon as you start reading them. I should say, though, um, that uh, Which Wood is really a very sad novel, and uh, so is Blanket of the Dark, really. Um, but then Tolkien was quite capable of sadness as well. So that's not a, that doesn't contradict what, what, what I was saying. It's just a kind of warning for you. So that was one question. Another one, I think it was Richard, asked about um, uh, the author Jack Vance, who I said was uh, the, great, uh, the great master of fantasy onomastics, the invention of uh, really um, um, inventive names. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you look at the website, www.academia.edu, and then type my name into the search uh, uh, button, the search panel, um, you'll see a whole string of, uh, of things I've put there. And one of them is my article, which is called Jack Vance, Il Ottimo Fabro. And I'm 
referring, I guess, to uh, T.S. Eliot's praise of Ezra Pound, who we called uh, Il Miglior Fabro, the better, the better creator. And I call Jack Vance the best creator, Il Ottimo Fabro. So you'll, well, it's obviously a, an article in praise of Vance, um, who was, I think, uh, uh, the great author in the American fantasy tradition. All right, those are two questions. Um, we also did not, I think, get to the bottom of the issue of uh, uh, the salvation of um, pre-Christians. Uh, and I asked the question, what was doctrine about the salvation of pre-Christians? And I picked a word up from one of the books I'll show you in a minute. Uh, pre-Christians who were inculpable, uh, who could not be blamed for not knowing about revelation. Well, uh, the answer is, I think, that there was no single doctrine, and I don't think there ever has been one which is accepted by everybody, which is satisfying and accepted by everybody, including the Pope, the head of the Orthodox Church, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the moderator of the Kirk of Scotland. And I can't, in fact, imagine uh, uh, a single solution which would satisfy all of them. Uh, so there are just different opinions, but some were more authoritative than others. And here's one, Corey, if we could have the first slide. Right, uh, when these come up on the screen, I don't read them to you because I know you can read them yourselves. Uh, and of course, as soon as I look at it, I see that there is a mistake in the, in the heading. He wasn't Bishop Higabald, he was Abbot Higabald. Don't know, don't know why I didn't notice that before. But anyway, who was Alcuin? Well, first, his name wasn't really Alcuin, that's the way we always write it, but that's because the Latin alphabet is not good at dealing with uh, Germanic uh, sounds. His name was, I think certainly, Alcuini, uh, and the uh, Latin alphabet couldn't do the K, and it couldn't do the W either. And it means um, friend of the temple. It's, uh, it's an old pagan name. However, Alcuin, or Alcuini, uh, certainly wasn't a pagan. He was a deacon uh, of the Church of York. Uh, he was famous for his learning, and he was headhunted by the Emperor of the Franks, by Charlemagne, to join Charlemagne's Council of Advisor. And he became what in modern terms would be, I guess, Commissioner for Education uh, across the European Union. So uh, a very authoritative figure indeed. And um, he, for instance, had a great deal to do with the establishment of an authoritative text for the Latin Bible. So a very, very, very senior clergyman. And you can see what he says. Um, what does he think about uh, um, old-time heroes who lived in uh, pagan eras, uh, the, old, the old heroes? Uh, well, he says, uh, the house is narrow, it cannot contain them both. The king of heaven will have no part with so-called kings who are heathen and damned. Well, I won't read it all for you, but let me just point out that Hinieldus, when he says, what has Hinieldus to do with Christ? Hinieldus is quite clearly the uh, hero Ingeld, who is a character in Beowulf. And his story is actually told by Beowulf himself. But uh, were, were they, in fact, uh, having Beowulf sung uh, in the monastery at Lindisfarne? Well, perhaps they were. But if they were... Um, Alcuin does not approve of it at all. He uh, thinks that kind of thing is uh, is completely intolerable uh, in a in a in a Christian environment. Well, that's that's a hardline view. The Beowulf poet uh, said was hardline 
about uh, elves and orcs and giants and etins, he, he thought they were all as bad as each other. There was no point trying to distinguish them. And clearly Tolkien did not agree with him. We talked about that last time. Uh, but uh, Alcuin is also a hardliner uh, on the, uh, the, the, the pagan problem. Um, uh, he, he thinks all that kind of thing should just be forgotten, abolished, uh, not encouraged at all, and no compromise is possible. Of course, not everybody agreed with him. Clearly the Beowulf poet did not agree with him. And actually, clearly, Abbot Higabald did not agree with him. That's what Alcuin is complaining about. But as I say, there was no single solution, no uh, universally accepted opinion. It was a, it was a contest, really. And um, uh, I don't like to take sides in it. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, different people thought different ways. But the attempt to solve the problem of virtuous pagans kept on coming back and curiously it's uh, often associated with the British Isles. The first uh, heretic to uh, get into trouble over this was a man called Pelagius and he was British not English and I expect his name was really Morgan. Pelagius is a translation of Morgan uh, and he uh, put forward a theory about how uh, pagans might be saved which of course was declared heretical. Um, another one, um, in my opinion, uh, not everybody's, was uh, someone very close in time and place to Beowulf, even more so than Alcuin, who was pretty close. But uh, there was a monk at Whitby who wrote uh, a story for which no source has ever been found. And people say, well, there must, must have been a source, must have been a source. He can't have made it up. Well, I think he did make it up. And he made up a story which was about how a pagan who had been an honest judge might be saved without being baptized. And the way he told the story, he was baptized because when uh, Pope Gregory heard what a good man he'd been, he was standing by his grave and he wept and the tears fell on the grave and those tears were accepted as baptism. Well, it's a story which gets around the problem, you might say. Uh, how can the inculpable be saved if they haven't been baptized? And behind it, there's a feeling that you've got to be baptized. You can't be saved without being baptized. But, okay, exceptions can be made. Well, it's, uh, it's you can see the problem. Uh, and you can see that the, the guy was trying to solve it. There's a similar story which Tolkien must have known very well because it's, um, it's very, very like another of his famous books, uh, the Gawain, uh, the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's written in the same dialect as Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and it's called St. Erkenwald and it tells substantially the same story about St. Erkenwald. Um, and there's one more that I, I could mention. Uh, I expect many of you have read the Narnia books and the last of those books, The Last Battle, um, is all about virtuous pagans, isn't it? And uh, in it uh, Lewis presents his solution to the problem. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Aslan or not during life. When you die, every person, when they die, has a vision of Aslan. And their reaction when they ha see that vision determines whether they are saved or damned. If they respond immediately with natural love and awe, they're saved. If they respond with fear and horror, they're damned. Um, 
Yes, well, um, where did you get that idea from? Actually, uh, I recognized it, uh, I won't say straight away, because I read the book when I was quite, uh, quite young, but I recognized it eventually as the doctrine of the clara visio, the clear vision, which was put forward by a 14th century Oxford theologian from England called Uchtred of Bolden. Uchtred of Bolden. Um, and uh, it was, of course, condemned as heretical uh, pretty much straight away. Uh, but how did Lewis come to um, find out about it? Answer, there was a British Academy lecture on the subject, just like Tolkien. So uh, Tolkien, uh, Lewis was probably in attendance when the, when the lecture was given. And if he wasn't, he read it not long after. But anyway, there are quite a number of attempts to uh, solve the problem of virtuous pagans, as I say, with a strong tendency to, uh, uh, to come from the British Isles. Uh, and uh, the Beowulf poet is one of them. And as I said in my last lecture, I think that's the main thing that Tolkien learned from Beowulf. He learned this idea of, um, what should we call it, of a a harmony, um, uh, a sort of halfway house between the pagan and the Christian. Well, um, actually, after I uh, uh, gave the lecture last week, I realized I had a couple of, uh, of books on the subject, and here's one of them. I'm going to hold it up and try and maneuver it so that it uh, is in the center of the webcam. And if you can see, it's called... Uh, uh, Santi Pagani nella terra di mezzo di Tolkien. And Santi Pagani is Italian for virtuous pagans. So it's a whole book about the problem of virtuous pagans in Middle Earth, and it's written by my friend Claudio Testi. Testi, T-E-S-T-I. Well, uh, it's, it's a jolly good book, but it's, it's all in Italian. Uh, if I had time, I'd translate it, but it would take me a long time to, uh, to get my Latin up to speed to do it fast enough. Meanwhile, I've got another one here, which is by a Jesuit, and you can't say fairer than that. And uh, there it is. Uh, Salvation Outside the Church, Tracing the History of the Catholic Response. And you can see it's by Father Sullivan, S.J., Society of Jesus. Well, uh, what Father Sullivan is then admitting is that there was a history of the Catholic response, which means, of course, that it must have kept on changing. Uh, so, uh, um, somewhere down the line, I guess, uh, uh, there is a place for all these people I've been talking about. But I suspect that Father Sullivan doesn't know about any of those. He's not interested in literature. He's interested in, uh, in theology. Still, uh, perhaps I've said enough to say that there is what I call a granny problem. What happened to my granny? What is the fate of my granny's soul? Because she died before she ever saw a missionary. And uh, you must see that that is, for some people, um, that must have been a painful question for which different solutions were found. Okay, uh, the other thing which I was talking about, as well as the granny problem, was to say that there was a fairy problem. Uh, where did the non-human species fit in the Christian universe? And uh, if we could have slide two, Corey, uh, the, the question was, were elves and fairies actually human? Uh, did they have souls? Could they be saved? Where did they fit in the schema? And uh, I told you that um, uh, I, I knew of six different solutions. Um, and you can see them on the, on the, on the slide there. Um, 
that bit about they are the sheep not of this fold at one point and I'm afraid I didn't look up the, uh, the Bible reference but at one point Jesus says and I think I can remember it in, in the Latin form um, alias always habeo quae non sunt de hoc ovuli I have other sheep who are not of this fold and it's an enigmatic statement and people understand it different ways but one way in which some people understood it was to say that there was a Christian mission to the non-humans as well though of course in the nature of things we don't know anything about it probably one of the other theories which needs a moment explanation is what are neutral angels well in the great war in heaven when Lucifer was uh, thrown down from heaven there were angels who sided with Lucifer and they turned into devils and there were angels which remained loyal and they are angels and there were also wishy-washy angels who didn't choose a side and they of course were expelled from heaven uh, expelled to earth and uh, they can still be seen and um, they're not they're not hostile to humanity unlike devils and uh, some writers including the author of the South English legendary expressed the opinion that at the last day of judgment they might yet be saved and he also thinks of course that this is the explanation for elves they, they are angels who've been exiled to earth and who are waiting for the last judgment okay half a dozen solutions to the fairy problem none of them generally accepted sometimes confused with each other as in the manuscript of Beowulf where the scribe I'm sure it's the scribe not the poet isn't sure whether we're talking about Cain or Ham partly because um, of the uh, difficulties with the Latin alphabet well yes but did Tolkien not have the same problem and was he not concerned about it what were Tolkien's views on orcs if we could have slide three Corey I got this little set off uh, Wikipedia but uh, fair enough um, could I say that the problem for Tolkien which I'm sure he didn't realize uh, uh, from the start is like this um, where do orcs come from they can't have been created by Sauron because it is a, a dogma which Tolkien often repeats that evil cannot create it is non-creative it is an absence not a presence it's a negative force not a positive force so as Treebeard says uh, the enemy uh, cannot make he can only mock trolls are made in in mockery of ants and orcs are made in mockery of elves but they can't actually be created from scratch that would be a heresy um, yeah so that means that they must be well um, the other half of the problem is uh, if they are shall we say human and they have souls then they must be capable of salvation and it would be um, most improper I think to just consign them all to, uh, to damnation without further ado so there's a kind of dilemma there and Tolkien uh, as you can see had um, seven goes at it um, and you notice the continuous use of the words fallen corrupted corrupted uh, that means that they haven't been created they've been brainwashed in some way uh, and so their fates are their own in the end their own responsibility as for the notion of sentient beasts I think that's a contradiction in terms 
So, Tolkien, I think, uh, he started off with the idea, which he got from Old Norse, that they kind of bred spontaneously in the earth, which is sort of what Jackson suggests in the Lord of the Rings movies. But um, that doesn't seem very satisfactory either, I'm afraid. And I think in the end, uh, well, Tolkien uh, uh, wrote about it uh, uh, many times, and his last statement on it, I think, comes in um, the history of Middle-earth, I think it's volume 11, Morgoth's Ring, uh, and there's a, an essay about it, uh, pages 408 to 24. So if you want to see what Tolkien came out with finally, though not decisively, that's, that's where to look. Well, so we had um, uh, a granny problem and a fairy problem. Tolkien, I think, solved the granny problem to his own satisfaction by borrowing from Beowulf, but uh, both he and the Beowulf poet had more trouble with what I call the fairy problem. Okay, uh, that's all really been a kind of coda from last time, and now I should get on to the uh, topic for this time, which is uh, Tolkien 1982, which of course is um, this book here, Finn and Hengist, uh, and uh, the question which I call uh, the origin of England. Well, first, um, who were Finn and Hengist? And could I just say that most people say Hengist, but Tolkien, who was uh, philologically scrupulous, always said Hengist. And uh, I accordingly also always say Hengist. So well, who were Finn and Hengist? Well, in the last lecture, I divided Beowulf up into seven sections. You remember, A1234, B one two three. The fights are B one two three, and the uh, kind of bits in between are the A sections. Well, A two, the way I number them, is the section after the defeat of Grendel and before the fight with Grendel's mother. And what happens in it is that uh, uh, after Grendel has been defeated in the morning, the Danes who arrive at the Hall Herot follow the blood trail which Grendel leaves. He's had his arm torn off. That, naturally he leaves a blood trail. They follow the blood trail to his lair in the monster's mirror. Uh, and then they ride back. And as they ride back, uh, a poet compares Beowulf to the hero Sigmund, whom we know, uh, and Heromode, who is more obscure. When they get back, King Hrothgar uh, is very pleased about the whole thing, expresses his thanks in a fulsome and rather misguided way. Um, and then there's a feast. And at the feast, the Danish harper sings a song about Finn and Hengist. Well, um, the trouble is, what we get is a summary of the song. And uh, it's really, uh, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. In fact, it seems to start halfway through. Uh, it starts with uh, a Danish queen who has been married to the Frisian king, uh, lamenting. And what she is lamenting is uh, fighting which has taken place in the night. So the, the summary we get starts with the morning after the night before. And there has clearly been fighting in the night uh, and an attack uh, on, on the hall. And uh, in the morning she discovers that her son is dead and so is her brother. Uh, so the, it, it focuses really on the sorrows of, of Hildebor who has lost her unnamed son and her brother Knaf, um, who is 
incidentally, a hero of the half days. A hero of the half days. Well, um, the fighting is terminated by a deal. Um, the Danes surviving, the surviving Danes, who are still defending the hall they've been sleeping in, um, agree to come out and they agree to serve Finn. And these surviving Danes are led by Hengist, who has taken over as leader after the death of uh, their lord, Knaf, Hildeboer's brother. So they, they agree to come out and serve Finn, and Finn agrees to uh, look after them and treat them well. And the most important stipulation is no one on the Frisian side is to say anything about the fact that the surviving Danes have agreed to serve the killer of their lord because it is obviously deeply disgraceful, deeply dishonorable, and, and no one must mention it. Right, well, um, it then describes the cremation funeral of the dead, uh, and uh, this is still in Beowulf. It switches to describing Hengist's feelings during the winter which follows this uh, unfortunate uh, fight uh, at Finsburg. And uh, in the spring, when everything starts to thaw and Hengist's feelings also seem to thaw, um, Hengist is uh, provoked into breaking the agreement, killing Finn, and taking Hildeboer, the Danish princess, back to her, to her people. Well, this is full of awkward questions. Um, who started it? Whose fault was it? Um, hasn't everyone behaved badly? Hengist, huh? He, uh, he, first he surrendered instead of fighting to the death, and then he broke the agreement. Um, as for the other side, um, they seem to have made a, uh, a treacherous assault on, uh, on guests, which again is uh, utterly disgraceful. Um, another problem uh, is that uh, I've talked about it as if it's Danes against Frisians, but actually the term half Danes has come up and the blame seems to be put not on the Frisians but on the Jutes and the Jutes, their neighbors of the Frisians, are not the same thing at all. Uh, well, um, and here is another embarrassment. Uh, Hengist, may I say, is, uh, is not only an English hero, he's also on the great seal of the United States of America. Um, so, uh, uh, but he appears to be, um, well, is it possible that uh, the first national hero uh, has become well, I don't like to quote the Simpsons, you know, but you know what, what the phrase is there, has become a surrender monkey? Um, surely not, surely not. We, we, very hard for, it's very hard for British scholars to accept this. And also then, of course, he appears to be um, an oath breaker. Uh, so uh, as a national hero and a, a kind of founding father, not only of England, but also actually of the United States of America, this is, uh, this is, not what we want to hear. And of course people spent their time trying to figure out some sort of uh, way of explaining all this. Well Tolkien um, typically thought of a quite different one from anything anybody else had ever said before. Um, and uh, typically 
he started off for what appears to be the most difficult part uh, of the whole um, uh, the whole affair, which is that um, we have Jutes attacking Danes, but among the Danes or half Danes, uh, we have Hengist, who is clearly in a leading role, and Hengist if it is the same man, and Tolkien certainly thought he was, and I think he was too, because there's only two people called Hengist, and they're living at the same time, and it seems the easiest solution to say they are the same man. Anyway, Hengist, the founder of the English Kingdom of Kent, was a Jute. So he's a Jute, fighting for the half-Danes, but they're attacked by Jutes. Well, what is going on here? Um, well, Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien wrote uh, uh, the book, well actually he gave a set of lectures which were eventually edited to become the book, really to explain his theory. But um, the book is one of the most difficult books I've ever come across in all my life. Um, what it is, uh, if you'll excuse me saying so, is 2,000 footnotes in search of a text. A large part of it is a glossary of names. So actually, Tolkien takes every name that's mentioned in the, in the two poems, and there are two poems, and works through saying everything can be said about them. But figuring out a, a kind of a total explanation from that is not easy. So if you are reading the book, you'd probably better look at the reconstruction, which is some five or six pages at the end. But um, even then, it is hard to figure out what Tolkien meant. And fortunately, and very strangely, um, somebody understood it. And uh, that's this book here. It's a, a young adult novel. It's called Hengist's Sale. And the author is Jill Peyton Walsh. Now, Ms. Walsh, as I shall call her, um, was uh, a student of English at Oxford. As far as I can make out, she had no opportunity to hear Tolkien lecturing on the Finsburg story. Um, so how did she find out about it? Because her novel ex uh, expresses Tolkien's scenario absolutely exactly. Well, uh, I think I can explain that. One is that um, you will see that Finn and Hengist, uh, can I get that to get in the center of the camera? Um, this is like trying to write your name in a mirror. Uh, edited by Alan Bliss. Okay, uh, I found out that uh, Miss Peyton Walsh's name, maiden name, before she was married, was Bliss. I thought, well, I wonder. And Doug Anderson, who did the annotated Hobbit, I don't know how Doug finds these things out, but he found out she was, in fact, Alan Bliss's niece. So Tolkien's editor could have told her about it. But actually, there's an even better solution which is that her novel is dedicated I don't know if you can see that, but it says to Elaine and Elaine is uh, Elaine Griffiths uh, uh, one of Tolkien's graduate students who was of course the one responsible for getting The Hobbit published so I think it's very likely that Elaine told young Miss Bliss uh, the story and she decided to make it into a novel which was her first novel 
And after that, like so many of Tolkien's students, she had a rather successful career as a children's author, especially of fantasies. Um, well, if you want to know what Tolkien thought about the Finsburg episode and the Finsburg fragment, read uh, Jill Peyton Walsh, Hedges' Tale. It's much quicker and easier than trying to figure out Tolkien. Uh, but I can tell you the gist of Tolkien's theory, and it's a uh, it's essentially a Second World War theory. What Tolkien thought was happening was that the Danes, who had started off in southern Sweden and expanded into the Danish islands, were expanding further and pushing their way into Jutland, where they would encounter the Jutes. And actually, it seems to me that's exactly what the first few lines of Beowulf are talking about. When it says that uh, that uh, shield shaving uh, uh, it's a, it's a crux I, I can't really explain it all very quickly, but it says really that uh, shield shaving uh, rolled up many tribes and took away their mead halls. He took away their mead halls. If you take away someone's mead hall in these circumstances, you are basically taking them over. Uh, you are rolling smaller kingdoms or communities or whatever and making them part of the Danish Empire. So the Danes are expanding in a kind of imperial way across uh, Jutland. And of course uh, this uh, is resisted by, uh, by uh, many if not most of the Jutes. Um, well, many but not all. And that's where the half-Danes come in. Um, Tolkien suggests that you really had a kind of, as I say, a World War II situation. Uh, uh, some of the Jutes became collaborator Jutes with the Danes and were called half-Danes. And the other Jutes who did not agree with that, uh, they, had to, um, they had to flee. Uh, they had to t go into exile where they became what in World War II terms would be free Jutes like the Free French, or the Free Dutch, or the Free Norwegians. You uh, join a, a, a still independent nation and try to recover independence for your own occupied country. Well, the obvious thing is that uh, uh, the Free Jutes and the Half-Dane Jutes, they really dislike each other. They hate each other. One lot considers the others as uh, traitors and collaborators, and the other lot calls them, I suppose, a deserters uh, and, uh, and refugees. So when um, uh, the Free Jutes take shelter at the Frisian court and the Danes come on a visit and the half-Danes come on a visit, this is a recipe for trouble. Obviously Hengist himself, as a leader of the collaborator Jutes, is a natural target for the Free Jutes and they are pretty much bound to have a go at it. Yeah, um, well, um, was this worth a whole book for Tolkien? Uh, obviously it was. I mean, uh, it, was, it was worth lecturing on again and again, and it turned into a whole book. And that's because I think it has to do with the origin of England. Um, now, uh, I'm running over time, so I'm going to cut this short. I'll just say that the whole question of English identity is, uh, is very difficult. Um, 
and, uh, and, and getting more difficult all the time, actually. Uh, it's, it's become a political hot potato now. But if we could have slide four, Corey. These are quotes by Tolkien. And you can see that he um, twice uh, distinguishes England from Great Britain. English, not British. Uh, and he is uh, devoted not to uh, Great Britain uh, and, uh, uh, and not the British Commonwealth, uh, but only to England. Um, and that's, uh, well, that's, uh, that's uh, a sore point is all I can say. Um, actually, I'll show you one thing. I'll look at my passport. See what it says there. United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That's the country I live in, the UK. Most people who live in the UK don't even know that. Uh, they think they live in Britain uh, or Great Britain. Uh, and Great Britain is a stupid term anyway. It's just translated from French, I'm afraid. Um, when I fly to America, if I see my uh, countrymen filling in their immigration forms, I always nudge them and say, look, where it says nationality, do not write GB. If you write GB, the American border officials will send you to the back of the queue because they know there's no such country. And quite often they say to me, what do you mean? I say, the country you live in is UK. Write down UK. However, the, uh, the, the, the UK Olympic team at the last Olympics went off with all their tracksuits labeled GB, Team GB. Um, I thought that was a terrible mistake to make. Um, I thought it was an insult to Northern Ireland, actually. But uh, uh, there you are. People, people get very confused about it, and I'll say no more about that. But um, European identities were mostly created quite recently. And the UK, for a start, really quite a recent invention. But part of the way they were created was by discovering early epics, which could be construed as uh, uh, representing national identity. El Cid for Spain, La Chanson de Roland for uh, France, Nibelungenlied for Germany. But the, the best example actually is the Finnish Kalevala, which uh, we know influenced Tolkien very deeply and very early. His first uh, story of Kulavo was a straight take from Kalevala. But uh, I could say, I think, quite definitely, Finland, the nation Finland, would not exist now if it had not been for Kalevala. It was Kalevala which gave the Finns a sense of identity and enabled them to become a country independent both of Russia and of Sweden. Before that, they did not have that sense of identity. Kalevala was imitated uh, all across the uh, Eastern Baltic. Um, do you know what the American Kalevala is? Well, I'll tell you. It's uh, Hiawatha. That is quite clearly, quite clearly, uh, an imitation of Kalevala, which uh, Longfellow hoped would help to create a sense of American identity. Well, this kind of identity politics was very powerful in medieval studies. And uh, when everybody was running around trying to find their national epic, the English were kind of lucky. Uh, they got Beowulf. No, they weren't lucky. It was a disaster. It's, a, it's, a, it's an epic, uh, yeah, and it's a jolly good one. And, and it's in English, but it never mentions England. The author doesn't seem to know where it is. 
and the only English characters in it are Hengist, not terribly helpful for a national epic, and uh, Offa, uh, who is quite clearly not King Offa of the Mark, but a remote ancestor of his, who again had never seen England and never heard of it. So, um, actually, uh, Beowulf as a as an identity-creating national epic was a, a kind of a, a dead loss. Yeah, and that is why Tolkien thought he'd better do something about it. He wanted, as he said, to create uh, a body of legend which he could dedicate to England. And his first idea was to uh, write his fairy mythology, shall we call it, and his first idea was to say that he would identify England with Tol Erisea. England would be Tol Erisea. Could we have the next slide, Corey? Um, there was a problem with, uh, with that, which is actually that, uh, that uh, um, Britannia, the, uh, the, the, the island of Britain and the province of Britannia, existed long before England did. And, um, and actually, uh, trying, to, trying to skip over that uh, naturally, naturally raised, raised serious questions about how all these things had happened. So Tolkien um, uh, wasn't quite sure how to deal with that, I think. Uh, but what he, he uh, came up with was, uh, was a series of, of ideas about um, the figure of Ariol. Uh, Ariol, well, perhaps you see the point I'm making. His original name is Otor. He calls himself Wavra, wavering, wandering, which is a name prominently used in the Finsburg story. Uh, sorry, a name, a word prominently used in the Finsburg story. And one of his, his sons are Hengist and Horsa the legendary founders of, of England. Um, so, Ariol, uh, he also adopts the name of Angol, which I think is an idea Tom, Tolkien dropped, but he was going to make him a kind of progenitor of England. Um, but Ariol, in his stay in Tol Erisea, learns one way or another, and Tolkien kept changing his mind about that, he learns one way or another the kind of fairy mythology of Tolkien and passes it on. What Tolkien is saying is, this, these stories I'm telling you, uh, I'm explaining where they came from. I'm explaining how, how they got to me. And could I say that Tolkien, because of his professional instincts, was always both fascinated and perturbed by the issue of transmission. He didn't just want to know what something was. He wanted to know how it got there. Just as he didn't want to know what a language was, he wanted to know how it had changed and developed. His idea of a text, we could say, was always dynamic. It wasn't fixed at one point in time. It had come from somewhere and it had been altered in the course of transmission. Well, Ariol was his solution to the transmission problem. And could I say that um, I, I think I first said uh, Ariol is a kind of Bilbo figure, but actually it's the other way around. Bilbo is the kind of late variant on Ariol, because where does the Lord of the Rings come from? Well, if you read the end of the prologue to Lord of the Rings, there's a long and rather detailed explanation of how all these stories came to be passed on. It starts off with Bilbo's diary, which is added to by Frodo, 
and then Bilbo's three volumes of Elvish translations from the Elvish are added in and they become the Red Book of Westmarch which is copied and becomes the Thanes book for Peregrine and is copied again under the orders of King Elisar by the scribe Findegil and that then is the chain of transmission which leads to Lord of the Rings. Um, Tolkien felt in a way that a book wasn't alive unless you knew how it had been transmitted. So since that is the case he had to think up transmitter figures like Bilbo and like Ariel. Um, well, uh, next slide if we may, uh, Corey, I'm r rushing through this rather. Um, Tolkien, as I say, kept changing his mind about, uh, uh, about Ariel. Um, uh, and eventually he became not a figure from the 5th century, father of Hengist, uh, a figure of the mid-5th century. Uh, he becomes actually someone from a much later period like probably, I would say, 10th century. Um, and he's become uh, not someone who has stayed on Tolarosea and come back from it. He's an Englishman who sails westward and picks up legends on his, uh, in his journeys. Um, well, all I've done actually is to, um, is to give a couple of excerpts from Book of Lost Tales 2, from The Shaping of Middle-earth, and uh, it would be quite a difficult job actually to go through all the permutations which uh, Tolkien went through. Um, but, uh, uh, and that's not the end of it. Again, if you want the end of it, or the last, the last version, you would have to look at um, um, uh, 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 the, 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 the History of Middle-earth volume, which I call Jewels, in which there's a section called Alfwina and Dir Havel. And that gives Tolkien's last words, I think, on, um, on this whole issue. But the real point is this. The real point is this. Tolkien originally decided to connect his mythology with the origins of England by making Ariol stroke Ottor, the father of Hengist and Horsa. And he could also be called Alfwina, though that would not be a name, it would be a description because it means friend of the elves, elf friend. So Ariel could also be called Ariel Alfwinner uh, because that's what he was. He was a friend of the elves. Well, um, one thing that arises out of that is uh, this rather enigmatic figure, Ariel Otter Alfwinner, whoever we decide to call him, he, he's an image of Tolkien, isn't he? He's the one who knows the true tradition of the fairies. Um, and Tolkien is just the last stage in that transmission. And in a sort of a way, uh, Tolkien believed that. He thought that he was the last bearer of this old tradition. And that's one of the things that he thought was important about the Finn story. Because the, uh, the hero of the half Danes is called Hnaf. And Tolkien thought that was very personal to him. When I met him, I can't remember which order he asked me these, but let's say he asked me first what was my explanation of the Oxfordshire place named Hinksy. And I said, well, it's uh, Hengest's E, the island of the stallion. 
And he said, yes, but it could also be the island of Hengist. Um, and then he asked, actually, I was telling him about, about the old Edwardian's rugby results. Um, and he said, I, I'm always, I always wear my old Edwardian's tie on these occasions. I was telling him about the old Edwardian's rugby results, and Tolkien was really interested, which most people wouldn't be. Um, and I just ran through the names of the team, and I got to uh, our winger, who was called Peter Neve, N-E-A-V-E, and Tolkien was immediately interested. And he asked me um, what I thought the etymology of the name Neve was. And I said, well, um, I guess it's um, Old North Nevy, Fist, it could be a, a nickname. And he said, yes, but it could also be the name Hlaf, just like Hinksy is from Hengist. But of course, I now know, I didn't realize then, that what Tolkien was wondering about was whether my friend Peter was a cousin of his because he had an Aunt Jane called Neve, and he wanted to try and figure out the relationship. But uh, yeah, um, that of course was uh, connected with uh, with uh, uh, Finn and Hengist. If you could have our next slide, Corey. You can see that I, I said the right thing when I said Knaf uh, could be a connected etymology with Nevi, um, and Tolkien also notes that uh, the names Knabi and Nebi are found in Old High German, and he suggests that the Nibelungs, the Nivelungar, could also be the Knivelungar. So that could also be uh, 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 the name of Knevi, and it ends up, if so, though we have no Norse story of Nevi, he must once have been a figure of importance in legend. So, uh, Tolkien thought that Knaf was actually a more important person in legendary tradition than we, we realized because we have so little of it. Well, um, and he also thought that, uh, he, he liked that thought because he thought that he himself was related to the whole Knaf neve family tree, you might say. Um, so he, he himself personally had a kind of connection with these ancient heroes. Well, um, there are several things I wish I'd been able to tell Tolkien about, and of course I didn't get the chance, uh, partly because I, well, I didn't know them at the time, and nor did anyone else. But I'd like to tell him that uh, many of us now think that Sir Garin and the Green Knight was not written in Cheshire, as people used to say, uh, but actually in Staffordshire, which would make it much more local to Tolkien. And the other thing I'd like to tell him is that um, when he says in Old High German these terms Knabi and Nebi are found, uh, they've been found a lot more than he ever knew. Uh, my friend Karl Hammer wrote a very long article about it all in the Journal of Medieval Prosopography. Prosopography is like Leographia, it's, uh, it's a census of names. And uh, you know, not everybody reads the Journal of Medieval Prosopography. Ah, well, they're, they're missing something there. But my friend Karl Hammer has pointed out that it was actually quite a widespread name among a noble Bavarian family. And he thinks that um, they got the legend from Anglo-Saxon missionaries, and they were attracted by the legend, and they decided to use these aristocratic names as a kind of uh, form of self-assertion. 
well, I think Tolkien would have liked the idea of Anglo-Saxon missionaries, whatever Deacon Alcuin might say, Anglo-Saxon missionaries spreading the story of his ancestor, Hnaf of the Half-Danes, so successfully that a whole noble family continued to call themselves by this name for generations. Um, well, uh, Tolkien's attempt to make his mythology an English mythology was, I think, a failure. It's become a universal mythology instead, and that's good. That's better than what Tolkien was aiming at. But um, Finn and Hengist as a book, sorry, I won't hold it up again. You know what I mean. Uh, Finn and Hengist as a book, it did show one thing, and that is that in spite of what Tolkien said in 1936, about rescuing Beowulf from the fairy godmother Historia and restoring the poem to poesis, taking the poem from history and restoring it to poetry. In spite of what he said there, he took Beowulf as a historical document very seriously indeed. Very seriously indeed. And so do I. Uh, he thought it really was a window into the very darkest of dark ages. And that was the time when the European nations were being formed. If you could have the last slide, Corey. Yeah, I always thought this was a very, uh, a very suggestive sentence or so. The story of Ingel is chiefly interesting as an episode in a larger theme, as part of a tradition concerning moving events in history, the arising of Denmark, and wars in the islands of the north, uh, rather like the wars of the uh, you know, the orcs and the dwarves, which took place uh, out of sight and no one knows anything about them. But uh, actually, uh, no doubt that is what was going on. But they're not quite out of sight, because Beowulf tells us something about them, and from that, we can infer a good deal more. So next time, I'm going to talk about. Uh, Beowulf as history and, and Tolkien's 2014 publication with his commentary on Beowulf because in that he actually gets around to explaining what he meant by a product of art and by the glamour of poesis. He said in his 1936 lecture we mustn't let the glamour of poesis fool us but he didn't say what it was. Well in the 2014 uh, publication, we find out what it was. And it is actually uh, very interesting indeed, very original uh, and very inspiring, I think. Okay, uh, that's what I have to say this time. Oh, and one other thing. I really must start off next time with the poem King Sheev, which is so suggestive and which brings together most of our themes like theology, mythology, history and poetry. So I'll try and remember to start off with King Sheev next time, but my main subject will be the glamour of poesis. Thanks very much. Okay, now let's see what questions um, I have to answer. And the first thing I'm going to do is to uh, open up uh, the question um, panel which 
is giving me a bit of trouble. Uh, Corey, uh, can you remind me how to um, open up the question panel so it's uh, a bit more visible? Actually, have I found it? Nope. So, <clears throat> there should be that little button, the uh, the square with the arrow pointing out of it, over on the right-hand side of the, in the control panel, right? There's the, the up part the that top. says question. And on yeah, the top got bar. It. Got there it. Go. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, uh, but it still hasn't, uh, it still hasn't opened up. Um, I unlocked the control panel from the screen. Uh, But did it uh, did it pop out there at all? No, I can just I can only see uh, 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 small amounts. Um, I'm actually uh, scrolling up to the top, but uh, I've only got a kind of uh, I can only see about a line at a time. Now I know there's a way of um, uh, of opening this up, but I, I've forgotten what it is. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it should just be that. But you, did, did you hit the? Uh, the square with the arrow in it button to pop it out, right, right next to the where it says questions. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. Um, well, I've I've clicked on that. Um, still not uh, not uh, not working. Um, nope. Uh, Okay, I, I can see where it says question, asker, received, answerer, answer. Where, where is the arrow that I should be looking for? To the... Oh. Yeah, so um, if you... Uh, right. Um, the, 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 the main menu... Uh, um, so where, you know, where it says questions in the... Um, yeah. Above there, on the yeah. right-hand side, there should be the little box with the arrow in it. A little box with a cross in it. Yeah, that'll do. Okay. Well, no. Nope. Um, still, still, uh, still as not. Hmm? It should just say "undock pane from panel." Is what it is. Put your mouse over it. Nope. If you'd like, I could uh, just go through and, and read you questions. Okay, well, let's do that so as we, uh, we get to move on. I'll just, uh, I'll just keep fiddling with it, but uh, give me the first question and we'll think about it. I, okay. I, I can see that, uh, that I think it's uh, Sparrow says, thanks for the fucking recommendations. Uh, Tony right. asks me, does uh, I think Tolkien actually believed in fairy and fairies? And uh, the answer is, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, Mind you, the belief was pretty widespread. Uh, in Leeds University, um, their special collections had uh, uh, all the material for the Cottingley fairies. Uh, this was a kind of a hoax. We know it was a hoax, in which uh, some naughty little girls uh, made some rather obvious faked pictures of fairies. But a lot of people actually believed they were true, and they still do. The, uh, the librarian told me it was the... Uh, most uh, sought out uh, um, set of materials in the collection, which I think he thought was rather depressing. 
Um, so certainly people did believe in fairies, but I think Tolkien didn't. Um, he uh, perhaps believed in fairyland in a way, but I don't think he thought that it was uh, accessible in any way. Um, uh, Andrew asks whether uh, the Beowulf poet is referring to theories about the Nephilim in Genesis 6. Well, uh, yes, yes, I, I think he knew something about that. Um, there was actually quite a, this is, a, this is a, a question that worried people, and there was quite an intensive tradition of commentary on Genesis 6, um, and we can't be quite sure what uh, was circulating in Anglo-Saxon England at the time, and you might well think not very much because they hadn't got very many books, but uh, certainly uh, there was a, a continuing interest in that, and it's not impossible that uh, some of it uh, some of it got through. Um, but the truth is that um, most Anglo-Saxon libraries were destroyed during the Viking Wars, and uh, we can't be sure what they had available. One thing I noticed a long time ago, um, there's a set of very poor quality Latin sermons called the uh, Sermones Ad Fratres in Eremo, um, sermons to the brothers in the desert. And uh, it's in very poor quality Latin. And its theology is enough to make your make you pretty feel pretty worried actually, um, and the uh, the editors of it who are French um, ascribe this to an unknown Belgian. But the only reason they ascribe them to an unknown Belgian is because the <laughs> the sermons frequently mention beer, and to a French editor, beer is Belgian. Ha! Huh. There is another possibility, is there not? I uh, and, and the, these ceremonies ad fratres were definitely known to Anglo-Saxon poets. So I've always wondered um, whether they could not be shown to be Anglo-Saxon work. But one of the troubles is that they were so darn popular that there's manuscripts all over Europe. Um, there was a kind of market, I think, for interesting theology about giants and devils and monsters and whatnot, and somebody out there was supplying it, and I suspect he was an Englishman. So quite possible is the answer to Andrew's question. Um, uh, sorry, um, Sparrow says, Hengist is an eagle? No, uh, did I say he was an eagle? Uh, oh, well, I think uh, she's referring to your comment about the Great Seal of America. Oh, no. Uh, well, of course, I've never studied the Great Seal of America, but I gather there is a picture uh, uh, on the Great Seal of America uh, of uh, Hengist and Horsa storming ashore from whatever it was they came from. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I'd have to look at the, 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 the iconography of the whole thing to, to be able to work it out, and I must say I never have. So just just count that as a mere hearsay for, on, on my part. Um, uh, Ilya, of course, comments uh, very correctly on um, uh, the uh, historical novel Thorstein of the Mere by um, uh, a guy called Collingwood. 
W.G. Collingwood, who had a famous son, R.G. Collingwood, who was actually a professor at, um, uh, at the same college as Tolkien. Uh, so they must have known each other quite well. But uh, Tolkien, I'm sure, knew all about W.G. Collingwood, who um, was in many ways, many ways, a, a kind of predecessor of uh, Tolkien, and also a founder of the, uh, the Viking Society, um, which uh, Tolkien, again, would have, uh, would have approved of. Um, yes, so uh, uh, and actually um, uh, Collingwood's books are, well, last time I looked, they're still available. There's a press in Wales which prints them. One is called Thorstein of the Mere, and the other one, I've got both of them, is called uh, The Bond Women, which uh, actually was a bit scandalous in its uh, time of publication because it, um, you'll find this hard to believe, but it portrays English women as sex slaves uh, for Vikings. And that's, uh, uh, that was pretty serious stuff at the time. I, uh, I think um, many people were very reluctant to believe that this could ever have happened. Um, national feeling is a great, uh, has far more effect on uh, scholarship uh, than, um, than people are ready to realize. Um, a lot of the commentary on Finn was an attempt by English authors to say um, our ancestor cannot be blamed for anything. It was all someone else's fault. Um, Anne says Hiawatha. I don't know why. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I could tell you a lot about Hiawatha, actually. Perhaps I'll say one or two things. Um, uh, there's no doubt it takes a lot from Kalevala. And the other, of course, is that it takes a lot from uh, a chap called Schoolcraft, who made a collection of Iroquois, no, I tell the light, Chippewa fairy tales, fairy tales, folk tales. Um, but that's really exactly like Kalevala, which also, uh, and its, and its m several uh, Baltic successors, which also relied heavily on folk tales. So uh, it was a, a determined effort by Longfellow, who was a very learned man, a very, very learned man, to actually produce a kind of American tradition which would be parallel to the most powerful European national tradition, which he knew of. Longfellow, uh, his, his star has fallen, and nobody takes him seriously now. But my word, <clears throat> he knew an awful lot. And he was incredibly popular at the time. Um, he just, uh, he's just been, I don't know. I don't know why his star has fallen, but he's perhaps the the most uh, downrated American poet that there is. And I think that's unjust, actually. Um, uh, Tony asks how, um, I think, Tolkien reconciled his uh, um, Catholic faith with his admiration from the pre-Christian legends and myths and people. Well, actually, I think he found it jolly difficult. Um, my pal Claudio Testi, says that what Tolkien was trying to do was create an harmonia, a harmony between pagan and Christian. And I think that's what Tolkien tried to do. And, and I think tried to do very successfully. But I also think he got more and more worried about it as he got older. And he began to wonder whether he'd done the right thing. Um, because, you know, in a way, 
in a way, well, that's what I said about the granny problem. In a way, they're incompatible. And you have to work really hard to make them harmonious or compatible. Yes, I think it worried him. Um, John Steen Redeker says, um, uh, how much history can we get from an epic that is inherently fictional? Well, we don't know that it's inherently fictional. Um, we assume it's uh, fictional. I, I grant Grendel and Grendel's mother and the dragon, uh, they're fictional. But uh, the, uh, the material, uh, as it were, in the background, I think is actually historical. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that nearly everybody agrees about Beowulf, that it is a stratified poem. There is a folktale stratum, which is what everyone knows about, and there is a historical stratum, uh, which um, has no doubt been fiddled around with and altered and, you know, uh, adapted to suit different uh, different requirements. But there is, uh, there, there, I think it's it's more historical than people have realised. And actually, if you if you want to know why I think that, go to Academia Edu. Oh no. I was going to say, look up my article on the names of Beowulf, but I, but I haven't actually put it up yet. Uh, so I'll, um, I'll, uh, I'll consider doing that at some later date. Uh, but uh, uh, I'll say something about it next time. Uh, the buried history in the lost tales of Beowulf. That's quite a good topic, actually. The buried history in the lost tales of Beowulf. Um, so I think, like Tolkien, um, uh, uh, I think uh, the poet was working from uh, legendary material, which was certainly thought by the people who were passing it on to be essentially true. Um, uh, the question of uh, you know Boromir and Gondor. Uh, uh, Boromir shows the dangers of nationalism, and um, Tolkien loving England, uh, does that show the dangers of nationalism? That's what people say nowadays. Uh, I told you it was a sore point. Could I just point out that uh, uh, in much of England, the flying of the English flag is banned because it's regarded as nationalist. But the flying of the Scottish flag in Scotland is perfectly okay. So how come it's all right for some people to be nationalist and not other people to be nationalist? Isn't flying the American flag nationalist? Of course it is. Well, okay. Um, perhaps one could make a distinction between nationalism and patriotism. Patriotism is loving your country. Nationalism is hating other countries. In that sense, is Boromir a nationalist, or is he a patriot? Well, okay. Um, I think I'll leave that question. Um, Alex says he had trouble finding the section that Tolkien translates a man of keen wit, the counterpart of the two towers. Um, uh, well, um, if you're talking about uh, uh, Tolkien's Beowulf translation, it's uh, when Beowulf arrives on the coast of, uh, of Denmark, no, 
really near the start, about line 300. Um, he turns up, the Coast Guard challenges him, uh, Beowulf replies saying who they are but without giving his name, and that's the point when the Coast Guard comes out with his proverb. And after he's given the proverb, he says, okay, I've decided, you, you people are okay, I will lead you to, uh, to uh, uh, the Danish court. So not only does he say that a man of keen wit must be able, in my view, to decide from words as well as deeds, having said that, he says, and I have decided. So it's a scene of someone making up his mind, and that is also true of Hama. Uh, Alex says he's got the bit where it says what warriors are ye clad in corslets it's it's about 20 lines after that that you will find the proverb um, Alex also says very truthfully that Longfellow is still popular but not regarded by English departments right well whenever this comes up I always remark on how unreliable my former colleagues are professors of English literature uh, a bad lot um, they get everything wrong uh, so we need to take too much notice of their ratings um, Carl 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 from uh, from Colombia says that he thought thought and, I'm, and Carl is almost certainly right that Jefferson proposed the inclusion of Henderson Horser on the seal but it didn't get there to the finished design oh well okay so the idea was there but it but it's not there now that is probably the version of which I got a garbled sense but I'll see if I can find the great seal actually and have a good look at it um, uh, John Steen comes back to say if Tolkien was trying to harmonize from the start why did he call the Valar gods in the earlier versions uh, is that why he changed this when he got older yep that's right. I think Tolkien, uh, uh, when he was young, uh, gave himself several problems for when he was older. One was the Valar, the gods, and I still think Lewis helped him out with that and gave him a kind of better explanation of it all. And the other was the orcs, which Tolkien never really managed to uh, solve to his own satisfaction. Um, but uh, the guy who wrote about this very well is uh, my friend Ronald Hutton and I'll have to look his uh, I'll have to look the reference up but uh, he wrote a, a very interesting piece about uh, uh, about Tolkien and paganism um, and Ronald is himself a pagan actually uh, one of the neo-pagans um, so he has a different angle from most people but I'll find the reference and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have it for you next time. It's a very good article. But what he says actually is that um, uh, is, is just that Tolkien did keep changing his mind and that he also, later in life, was trying to cover his tracks um, because he felt he'd perhaps gone a bit too far. Um, Yes, uh, Kate says uh, Ariel turns into Bilbo and Tolkien actually calls himself a hobbit in all but size, uh, quite so. Um, yes, uh, Kate also says this maxim about judging, isn't that also what Aragorn says to Eomer about 
how to judge in these hard times. Actually, um, someone has just sent me a book which I haven't read yet, and it's called whoops, The Proverbs of Middle Earth, and it's by um, David Rowe. So uh, he is obviously um, made, uh, well, it's a 200-page it's a study of just that topic, the Proverbs of Middle-earth. And when I have read it, I dare say I'll know more than I do right now. Um, yes, uh, Alex points out that Lewis said that Yeats believed in fairies. Yes, I'm not surprised. And Conan Doyle did, which is more surprising. Uh, not sure about J.M. Barry, but belief in fairies was quite widespread, as I say. Conan Doyle was, was taken in by the Cottingley fairies. John says, how do you figure out the historical bits from the fictional ones? Yeah, well, um, short answer, if there's corroboration, especially if, especially if, um, well, uh, perhaps the obvious one actually is, um, if it wasn't for the fact that Beowulf's uncle Higelac got himself killed uh, uh, on the mainland of Europe in what's now the Netherlands, we might think that everything, the, the, whole, the whole lot was fictional because we've got no evidence from any, about any of the others from outside Scandinavia and also from much later. But with Higelac, we have four... Um, witnesses, documentary witnesses, which are contemporary or quite close to contemporary. So he was a real person. So he was a real person, and if he was a real person, then there's a very good chance that the others are all real people. But if we didn't have that corroboration, we could say, oh, the whole thing's fiction. But now we can't. And I'd add that uh, Higelac is a representative of the most obscure and unknown royal dynasty because they got wiped out. So he would be the easiest one to dismiss as fiction, but he's the only one we can't dismiss as fiction. But there are other corroborations, I think, of what's said in Beowulf. Not all of them recognized because people were taken in by talking, decided it couldn't be historical and stopped looking. Well, I get too excited if I go on uh, uh, talking about this, but I, I promise to bring up at least one of these cases next time. Though it's not an easy one to explain, but it, it, it makes horribly good sense um, uh, once, you, once you figure it out. Um, Yeah, Andrew mentions uh, um, Collingwood's uh, uh, book, uh, The Philosophy of Enchantment, uh, which is very odd. It, got, it has indeed got interesting parallels with Tolkien. The two guys must have had lunch together three days a week, but neither of them mentions the other. Perhaps they're, perhaps they're hiding something. Perhaps they're covering their tracks, but certainly... Uh, uh, or possibly they didn't get on with each other, because there were areas where I think uh, Tolkien and Collingwood Jr. were not in agreement, but Tolkien and Collingwood Sr. were in agreement. 
So you can never tell what sort of personal uh, friendships or animosities uh, uh, lie behind these things. But certainly the two men were very closely connected at Pembroke, of course. Um, the great seal of the United States, perhaps I shouldn't have said that, but uh, it's Ilya says that uh, he's, he's found something on Wikipedia. Jefferson proposed that the seal have Henderson Horsa um, on it, and they were called the Saxon chiefs, from whom we claim the honor of being descended, and whose political principles and form of government we assumed. Well, I don't know if Thomas Jefferson was descended from Hengist. I myself am of Jutish ancestry, so perhaps I am. But I don't think Hengist had any political principles apart from um, uh, taking revenge and knocking people off. I don't think that's what Jefferson meant somehow. Still, uh, Hengist and Horsa were obviously important people to the early founders of the USA, as of some uh, British historians. Uh, Kate brings up the topic of infant death. Um, um, but uh, uh, and uh, there are comments also. Oh, it, the sheep not of this fold is the Gospel of John, chapter ten, verse sixteen, and it is, of course, interpreted in different ways. And the standard interpretation is to say, I think, that Jesus is saying that he is not talking only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. But people who are looking for a kind of explanation of the non-human species uh, adapted it for their purpose. Um, uh, it's pointed out that I, the Icelandic scholars um, uh, of the Middle Ages, uh, like Snorri Sturluson, this is Halstein talking, managed to harmonize their ancestors' beliefs to a degree. That's so. And of course, they did lots of things. Another thing which you quite often get mentioned is that uh, um, sometimes um, the Icelanders would dig up their ancestors, like Eötl Skallagrímsson, and uh, rebury them in consecrated ground. Uh, and uh, you might say, well, that doesn't work because you, you know you can't you can't make it retrospective. But actually, obviously, people thought it was worth a try. Uh, that uh, even if your ancestors had been pagan and had never been Christian, just the same, you could give them a Christian burial and hope for the best. And <coughs> all I can say is that seems not unreasonable to me. Um, Halstein also comments on the uh, landscape near the six halls excavated at Gamla Lyra in, uh, in Denmark. And actually, um, there's a term for this. Um, oh, just to the west of Lyra is an area which I think is called an area of old ice, which has been much carved up by glaciers. And that is... I mean, most of Denmark is uh, is really extraordinarily uh, beautiful and well cultivated, um, but uh, so there aren't many kind of wilderness areas there. But one of the uh, 
the patches of uh, rough territory and swamp and bog is indeed uh, quite close to Lyra. I've always meant to go and have a walk around there, but I've never actually had the, had time to do it, though I visited Lyra a couple of times. Um, uh, Tom Hillman comments on uh, Vance's successful uh, development of uh, different kinds of fairies in his Leoness series, which again is, I think, a great work. Uh, it's a trilogy. The first two books are cracking good. The third one, uh, going off a bit. But um, the first, it's called Leoness. The first one is called Soldron's Garden. The second one is called The Green Pearl. And the third one is called Maduk. But uh, if you haven't read those before, I envy you, because it's a great experience to read them. Yes. Um. You used to talk about Conan Doyle. I mean, this is really not to do with our main theme, but um, why was he so uh, gullible? Well... After World War One, with all the dead, there was a great vogue for spiritualism. People trying to get in touch with their dead. Um, there's a lot of there are a lot of stories about it. I think Doyle was affected by that, and it's only natural, really. Um, there's some powerful uh, powerful stories about it by Kipling, actually, who uh, was also, of course, he lost his son in World War One, and they never found the body. Well, they did just a few years ago, but they never found the body while Kipling was alive, and he was very strongly marked by grief, I think. He wrote a poem called My Boy Jack, which is uh, another of the really sad ones. Um, uh, I haven't got a book about creating imaginative place names, Andrew. I'll just say that Vance is, I think, the great creator of imaginative place names. Um, uh, but as I say, my uh, article on Academia Edu uh, will give you some examples of that. Um, somebody asks about, um, who is it, Tony, asks about uh, academic searching for national identity in medieval studies. Am I referring to those in the 19th century? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, the book about that, which I think I recommend to everybody, is called National Thought in Europe, and it's by another friend of mine called Joop, J-O-E-P, Learson, L-E-E-R-S-S-E-N. Joop is at the University of Amsterdam, and he, uh, uh, oh, actually, there's a website. Look at Ernie, Encyclopedia of Romantic Nationalism in Europe. That will tell you enormous amounts about the... Uh, development of romantic nationalism. And I have, uh, nothing have I said, I've actually written it somewhere. Um, romantic nationalism is the most politically significant intellectual movement of the 19th century, bar none. More significant than Marxism, say. Um, that's what created the map of Europe. Uh, and in a sense, I think I've already said this isn't very popular, um, the failure of the European Union at the moment is caused by the fact 
that it has nothing to put up against romantic nationalism. What you want is romantic internationalism, but uh, we haven't got any of that. But romantic nationalism was immensely powerful in creating uh, editions of medieval texts, rewritings of medieval texts, historical novels, poems, uh, symphonies, uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony, uh, all the all the Kalevala inspired stuff, uh, and and also art. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a website. Have a look at it. There's a, in, enormous amounts of material there, uh, but studied mostly in Europe. I go to conferences uh, with these guys, and I'm usually the only English speaker present. Uh, because uh, we don't take an interest in it. That is uh, a mistake, I think. Um, ah, what can we do about the dominance of the professors of literature, Eric? We don't need to do anything. Um, uh, I'm not gloating over this, you understand, despite, despite grinning. Uh, Old Norse glotta actually means to grin, uh, but then I think when Old Norsemen were grinning, they were usually gloating. So that's, uh, but um, I'm not gloating about it. But uh, the uh, number of um, undergraduates majoring in the humanities has been going down for some considerable time, and the number of those majoring in English literature has been going really down. And I can't help thinking that's because my former colleagues, the professors of English literature, have been offering an inferior product. Uh, that's what happens in the market, you know. You offer an inferior product, nobody buys it. Um, that's just my opinion, and I have been retired for eight years, so I don't have to fight this argument anymore. But uh, you notice, uh, uh, for many years, uh, you, you couldn't get a course on about Tolkien or a course on about science fiction. Oh no, 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 no! They weren't literature. They were, they were, they, they were just entertainment. But now people are putting on courses because why? Because they need the students. No students, no faculty. Um, so the professors of English literature are slowly having to. Uh, respond to this by satisfying the market demand, but for a long time they set their faces like flint against it. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. So we will just have to let, we will have to leave them to the care of time. Um, the story by the Whitby monk is in the life of Gregory the Great. Uh, Jim Hart asks this. And uh, the life of Gregory the Great was edited and translated by, by a guy called Cosgrove, not Cosgrave, Cosgrove, um, which uh, I dare say will be available in some. It, may, it might be online by now. Look for the life of Gregory the Great by the anonymous Whitby monk. And I think, as I say, the editor is Cosgrove. Um, Ilya comments on the word glotta and says it's an ominous word. Yes, it is an ominous word. Now, I'll tell you where it's ominous. If you read uh, uh, the great uh, saga of Burnt Njal, Njal saga, um, the, the character in it uh, 
if I may use the term, the really badass character in it is called Skarp Hedin Njalsson. And uh, in that saga, Skarp Hedin Njalsson grins nine times. It's one of his, it's his signature gesture. And every time he grins, it's bad news, really bad news. Um, well, uh, one of the attractive things about Old Norse literature, I think, is that uh, they have got a strong sense of humor. But, you know, if you go on a dating site, people are always saying, uh, advertising themselves as GSOH, good sense of humor. But in Old Norse, they only have a bad sense of humor. Um, which I, of course, find very funny. Uh, but uh, but there, um, um, uh, obviously, I have, uh, it's my it's my Jutish ancestry breaking out when I think this is funny. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, I did a study once, actually, of uh, how many times people laughed in Old English uh, poetry. It's always a bad sign. Yes, the idea of kind of uh, um, cheerful mirth uh, is not really very prominent in Old English. By contrast, incidentally, um, you know, Tolkien's second favorite poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, I once counted in that that there are 27 occasions when people laugh. But, you know, the laughs are quite different. Sometimes it's amusement. Sometimes it's giggling. Sometimes it's aggressive. Uh, the Germans have two terms gegeneinander lachen and miteinander lachen. You can laugh with someone or you can laugh against someone. Um, well, so going to the Green Knight has both. And sometimes, as at the end of the poem, you aren't quite sure which it is. It can be a, an ambiguous social sign. So, yeah, um, uh, there's a lot to be said about laughter. And if I had the book handy, um, I would show it to you because someone has just brought out a book called um, Laughter in Middle-earth um, and it's edited by Thomas Honiger uh, from Jena University. Well, Laughter in Middle-earth, actually Jennifer Raimundo, if she is listening, is uh, one of the contributors to it. Um, is that right? Gosh, uh, I... Uh, I I can't, I can't, it, it, it's not handy, um, but uh, certainly one of our number, I think, has contributed an article to it. Um, so, yeah, Laughter in Middle-earth, um, uh, good book. Um, uh, if you can find it, you'll be amused by it, and instructed as well. I think I've got to the bottom of the questions now. Um, very good, very yeah. good. Well, yes, I have, you. Yeah, we are. Yes, and we're just, just, just past 10.30, so we're more or less on time for once. I think so. I think so. Very good. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us again. Uh, I yeah. look forward to next week, our, the final installment, when we're going to talk about the 2014 Beowulf publication. Absolutely. Okay. Bye, everybody. Very good. Thanks again very much, and we'll see everybody next week. Yeah. Good night. Good night. If you enjoyed this seminar, Please consider making a small donation to Signum University. Your gift will help us continue to make the seminar series and other great content available for free to the public. Just go to signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate slash seminars. Thanks!